So this is a shear as part of the series, um, which to me is the hardest series, the hardest, I'm trying to give different series to try to help uh, provide gateways to make sense, not make sense, but to navigate what we're living through. We're living through history, we're living through trauma. Um, just this week, listening to some of the people talk to me from Klitzlaritz, I feel as if maybe the frequency that we're processing here is a little bit different than the frequency of the people in Klitzlaritz, for understandable reasons, I'm, I'm not castigating, but... The, the, the sheer amount of Leviathans we sit and watch and the, the continuing tragedies that we hear about. And, and obviously it's something you're, you're processing more viscerally in Eretz Yisrael. And there's a lot of humility and a lot of frustration as well as a lot of pride and a lot of strength in the army. And I feel like in Chutzlar there's a lot of mobilization and a lot of let's get everyone together and fight this battle. And, and I think there's a side here that I'm not sure it's... And I, again, I, I completely understand that I'm not sure how much it's permeating. But I'm trying to create um, voices and ideas, and one series is Tehillim, and one series is exploring past Nisim, and this is the hardest one to think about what war means. We just haven't fought war in, in so long, and um, in the wars we fought, like in, until now, uh, six-day wars, Nisim and Aflos, but now we're involved, and we realize that part of our presence in the state of Israel is going to include continuous wars and battles, and after we're finished with Hamas, we have to deal with Hezbollah, and it's a very different feel, knowing that we're probably facing, until HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us uh, Nisim Gluyim, we're, we're probably facing Nisim Nistarim from HaKadosh Baruch which is going to include a heavy amount of fighting. In, in any event, um, so this is the series about what war means, and what war means in religion, and what war means to us in our, in our religious identities, and it's hard, we don't have much of a Masara. So I'm trying to articulate it to myself and using the shiurim as a excuse or justification. In any event, one of the aspects of war is that it is only feasible if the entire country obviously is unified. And that unity is one of the byproducts of war. I think we all feel that now in Eretz Yisrael. I feel that we're a little bit embarrassed that we couldn't generate it under conditions of peace. Who is to know the ways of Hashem? It's impossible to know why Hashem allowed this to happen. Is this Hashem's way of fostering the unity we were unable to achieve? Don't let anyone tell you that with certainty. Uh, that would be morally offensive to, to say it with confidence. It would be theologically uh, insolent to think that you know Hashem's way, but we say it with perhaps and who knows. And I mean, We have to be very careful to process these events as much as we try to find meaning and connection in prophecy with Tznius, and also with um, what I'm looking for, honesty, sobriety. Um, I heard someone give a share. This is just Chavle Mashiach, and Mashiach's around the corner, and tomorrow Mashiach's coming. And you know, holding up those promises, certainly for people that believe deeply in them, younger people in particular, when those promises don't come true, you could be setting them up for failure. And also, we don't know how long this process will last. So, just to sugarcoat, we know the end. We know the terminus. We don't know the timelines. We don't know the caliber, how rugged, how smooth. So just to, you have to be very, very honest and sober and forthright and candid and humble and try to find. Some people don't try to find meaning. And for them, it's an ace star. We dive in, we learn, and we just hope and pray and we dive in. Some people are looking for meaning in this and trying to look for meaning, but in very, very modest and humble fashion. So how, how does Nilchama achieve unity? So I, I would talk about two issues. 
Number one, when the Rambam, very, very important Rambam, I'm sure, I'm going to get back to this Rambam many times. It's a very, very iconic Rambam. In Hilchos Melachim, which is officially called Hilchos Melachim Umil Chemosehem, the Rambam describes the mindset of a soldier. And this is the mindset that is triggered or, or, or induced by the Kohen Meshuach's pre-Milchama speech, in which he tells them that Hashem is fighting with them, and those who are afraid should go home, and those who have other things in their mind, like newly built homes, newly planted vineyards, newly engaged women, that they shouldn't fight. There's actually an Isser, to be afraid, according to Mas Rishonim, during the battle, Al Yerech Levavchen. And the Rambam writes, Once you enter the heart of war, you should rely on Hashem, the hope of the Jewish people. Every Mulchama, you're being Hashem, you're standing for and representing Hashem, whether it's a Mulchamas Mitzvah, whether it's a Mulchamas Rishus, because you represent Hashem in this world. You put your life in your hands. You shouldn't be afraid. You shouldn't think about your wife and your children. Very harsh words. You should eliminate any thoughts of family. And you turn all of your attention toward nothing else. If you start thinking during the time of war about other areas, you violate the Lotus, which Paskins, and of course you also endanger other people. So this, this description, by the way, it sounds like if you didn't know that you were describing someone in the middle of war, it sounds like the ultimate profile of Avodah Hashem. You don't think about anything else, just think about a Kodesh Baruch Okay, I, I'm not sure that ignoring your wife and your family is the highest profile of Avodah Hashem under normal circumstances, but evidently under war it's necessary. And there's a selflessness, and there's a patriotism, and there's a self-sacrifice, and there's a decentralization of self and of ego and of self-interest, and when that's reproduced across tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, it trickles down not just to the fighters, but to the people, the entire population. And there's a greater, there's a greater moment of unity. So the Rambam's description of the ideal religious warrior is someone who is completely, I wouldn't say depersonalized themselves. I don't think that's, that's right. I think the parish of, of um, Yifas Tawar, which recognizes human needs during battle and passions that are aroused during battle because it's a very passionate experience, means we, we don't want to objectify ourselves or depersonalize ourselves. However, we should focus as much as we can on courage and bravery, which stems from faith in HaKadosh Baruch I, I think also that a war requires coordination of three different segments. And I think we're seeing that now, and I'm trying to create parallels between what we're witnessing and what war is meant to be, even though we forgot about war, because we didn't wage war in so long. There really are three groups that wage war. There's the principal soldiers who are immediately available. There are secondary soldiers who are drafted for all sorts of purposes. And then there's the, we call the ORF, the people at home who are just as valuable. They may not be sacrificing their lives, but they're working right now. I'm part of that ORF. I have um, my children, my grandchildren, other people. So I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm literally working overtime to support their needs. And it, it feels a little bit safer, but it's a lot of hard work. So let's talk about the first two groups, the original soldiers and the subsequent soldiers. So I want to contrast, and I'm not the first to create this contrast. It's an obvious, not obvious, but it's certainly a, an easy contrast to make between two wars fought in the beginning of Shokin. The war against Sisra, the general of Midian, who was the, I guess, the defender of Yavin, Melech, Kinan, 
So there was some alliance between Canaan and Midian. Sisera was a Midianite, Yavin was a Canaanite, but Sisera was his mercenary protector. He was, he was the Wagner group of Yavin Melech Canaan. He tortured the Jews for 20 years. And Devar and Barak respond and, and, and eliminate him. Now, when Devara originally asked Barak, Barak Okon, to get soldiers, he asks, she asks him to take 10,000 men from Naphtali and from Zavulin. So it's clear that Naphtali and Zavulin are providing the actual, we would call them, the immediate soldiers. In Devara's shira, her song that she sings after the victory, so she celebrates all the people who delivered their help to this war, as she calls them, I'll just show you the Pesukim if you want to look inside, Parakei Pasuk Tes, Libi Lechokekei Yisrael, to the leaders of the Jewish people, my heart goes out, Hamisnadvim Ba'am, Baruch Hashem, the volunteers. So this is the army that was in the front lines. They came from Naphtali, they came from Zevulun, they probably came from Yisachar as well. Because in the, although we don't see the fighters of Yisachar in the actual description of the war, we see Naphtali and Zevulun, in her celebration of those that came, she says, V'sarai b'yisachar im devara v'yisachar kein barak v'emek shulach beraglav. So, of course, she mentions Zevulun and Naphtali, but she mentions Yisachar. So even though we don't see Yisachar, it sounds like they, they were the soldiers who joined, maybe after Naphtali and Zevulun. They were, we call them Milu Imnikim. They are those who were called up during the war. And then she talks about people who didn't come. Most notoriously, Biflagos Ruvain, the leaders of the Ruvain, why did you stay with the sheep? It's not the listening to your sheep whistle. Why did you come? The people of Gilad, they remained in Eva Vidan. Why did you spend your time with your boats? Asher, And you just, Asher, you, you waited on the coast. While Zevulon imcheref nafsholamos. Zevulon was dedicating his life to die. Naphtali and Zavulun were fighting with all their life and all their efforts, and why were you staying on the sidelines, Reuven, and Asher, and Dan, and Gilad? And of course, it may be referring to a broader group of people. So you see the failure of Barak and Devara. They had their soldiers, the fighting soldiers from Naphtali and from Zavulun, but they were less capable of um, less capable of drafting the, the, the soldiers to help the battle, the secondary soldiers, as we would call them, to help the battle. Right? There, there obviously are two parts here. Obviously, there's a moral issue. Why should some fight and others not fight? And that's Moshe's primary concern with B'nai God and B'nai Ruvay. And it turns out that he, he's correct. Like, if you're going to live on the east bank of the Jordan, you're not going to join the war. So they make a contract to join the immediate wars, but at some point, once the immediate wars end, the people of Gilad, which is in the north of the of the east bank of the Jordan River, of the Arden, don't join. So there's a moral issue, and, and and of course this is something which we live through in Israel, and it's you know without taking one side or the other. But there, you know those who feel they should serve in the army, one of the issues is moral. Why is your blood less red or redder than other people's blood? If they're, if they are sacrificing, then we should sacrifice. And some feel that their sacrifice is, is exclusively through Talmud Torah. But this is something which Devara is concerned about. Why did some fight and others didn't fight? But it, it's, it's clear that she had the initial soldiers and she wasn't capable of drafting additional soldiers. You see the same story unfold, but in reverse with Gidon. Gidon's fight is described in Perak Vav and Perak Zion. Gidon is also fighting an axis of evil. 
This is Perek Vav, Pasuk Lamed Gimel, V'chol Midyan V'amalek U'v'nei Kedem. So these three, Midyan, Amalek, and B'nei Kedem, Nesfu Yachad, and Gidon gathers soldiers. And he sends, interestingly enough, soldiers to Zavulan and Naphtali, which were the uh, the veterans, possibly, or at least the tribe, the Shevet, who were the veterans from the previous war, but Asher who didn't join. And he tries to gather, and he, he asks Hashem for Nisim, and the Nisim happen, you know, the, uh, the, the, um, you know the, the wool gets wet and gets dry. And at that point, he has 32,000 soldiers. But that 32,000 soldiers then pare down to um, only 10,000 soldiers. Because 22 leave. So this big draft of, of 32,000 soldiers ends up being whittled down to 10,000 and then ultimately to 300. And the primary battle, because it's supernatural, is waged by 300 soldiers with their surprise tactics and with their uh, empty jugs and with their um, fire and their torches. But as the 300 attack, so this is now in the end of Parag Zion or towards the end of Parag Zion, so the 300 attack and, and basically almost defeat the camps of the assembled armies, then they call the reserves in. And Yidon sends out messengers throughout all of Ephraim. So Ephraim gets involved, and they capture a river, and they capture Midian. So maybe some of the original soldiers from Asher, Naphtali, and Zavulin, new soldiers joining from Ephraim. So you see that Gidon, in many ways, is successful in drafting the reserves, in drafting the, the armies, not just the 300 who ultimately do the frontal battle, but the entire reserve. So, so much is, is creating coordination and symmetry between, you're not going to need, evidently, for whatever reason in this battle, 10,000, you'll need 300 to lead the first charge, but you'll need 32,000 plus to help in the reserves. And to a degree, Devara is frustrated, as though Barak had succeeded, Barak had succeeded in drafting the initial group, the second group. And I think that Baruch Hashem, what we're seeing in Eretz Yisrael, is we're seeing, as people say, 130% Miloim, if not more. And that's a, a unity that can change the complexion of a war. I was just thinking to myself today, I imagine that some of the Hamas animals, Yimach Shemam, watching all the strife in Israel and all the uh, pledges of soldiers not to perform their military service or their Miloim because of their political opinions, probably gambled or were cocky and assuming, yeah, well, we'll, we'll strike an initial blow, maybe other Iraqis will join, and the Jewish army, the Israeli army, will be, such, will be in such disarray and be so much dissent and so much disunity that they can't launch any counterattack. They don't have the heart for it. They don't have the unity for it. And what we're seeing is how central unity is to success in war, how much war generates it, and how unity is not just among soldiers in the same unit, but there are different layers to any successful war. And the third layer, which I mentioned before, is the, we call the RF, the back front, the home front. And you see this in Gidon, and, and it's really, it's like, it's stunning once you see it. You don't see it so much in Devara. Now I'm skipping ahead to Parakhas. What happens in Parakhas? Gidon and his troops arrive exhausted from all these battles, all these supernatural victories, and they come to a city called Sukkos. This is Parakhas Pasakeh in Shoftim. And they asked the people of Sukkot, let us have some loaves of bread, because we're exhausted, because we've been fighting these uh, generals or these officials of Bidjan called Zebach and Salmunah. You may recognize Zebach Salmunah called Nesichemo. This is in um, Tehillim Pegimo, which many people are reciting now. And the people of Sukkot say, well, have you really conquered Zebach and Salmunah? Have you completely triumphed that we should give you bread? So Gideon is furious, 
And he says, when I do get Zevach and Samun, I'm going to punish you and I'm going to rake you with um, thorns of the desert. And then he goes to Penuel, the next city. He says the same thing. And the chutzpah, the people of Penuel say, you know, you haven't really done anything for us. So he says the same thing. Be careful. So the next paragraph, the next paragraph, sub-parak, in the middle of Parachas, Pasagyod, talks about Gidon routing Zevach and Salmuna. Then he gets back to Sukkos and he punishes them without getting into um, without getting into the details of how he punished the people of Sukkot and the people of Penuel. So here you see that although Gidon was successful in rallying the reservists, as we'd call them, the second layer of soldiers, Masher and Zevulun and Naphtali and, and Ephraim, not necessarily the 300 battlers, like the, you know, the, was the, the Spartans, the 300 Spartans who were in the, in the midst of the battle, he's not successful, and this is a flaw of the Jewish people, in creating um, selflessness and unity and donations and and um, and, and symmetry or coordination between the home front, the people of Sukkot and the people of Penuel. And I think what we're seeing, and we're seeing this unity, not just because of the selflessness that a soldier has to display, because you need several different divisions in order for war to succeed. You need the primary fighters. You need what we call the reservists. In those days, it wasn't really Milunikim, but you don't need hundreds of thousands of people at every moment in the war, but you need them to participate in the war effort. You still need the home front, in this case, supply lines to supply food. And sadly, the people of, of Pinoel and Sukkot uh, do not step forward. And they fail Gidon, Gidon therefore has to punish them. And I think this is a little bit why Devara, and I'll get to this maybe in another share, compares the war effort to Harsinai. In her song, Parakei, Hashem betzitzcha mesi'ir betzitzcha mesi'adam, Eretz Rasha Agam Shemaim. Not going to get into the details, but three or four psalms, Zesinai b'nei Hashem. Nothing, nothing with Devara and Sisra reflected Harsinai. This is a war. So we get maybe into a different share how a war and Harsina are related and how Talmud Torah is similar to a war and how war is a model for Talmud Torah. But I think that in Harsina, right? I know that Harsina was Ishachad Belevachad Yom HaKahal. It's constantly referred to as the Day of Unity, standing in front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so awe-inspiring that people lost the ego and strife and divisiveness. And I think that that's part of her referencing Harsina because she was looking for Harsina like unity and sadly she was disappointed and it comes across in her shir. I remember her shir, her shira, shiras devara, is not a whole praise. There's some hidden and not so hidden criticism against those who didn't join the war. So this is uh, the next shir, I think it's number four, or maybe three or four, in a series of shir and four about war and religion. And I'm thinking about how war requires unity and not just the unity of people getting along with each other, but what I would call structural unity, different structures of society.